Welcome to the DNVGL Talks Energy podcast series. Electrification, rise of renewables and new technologies supported by more data and IT systems are transforming the power system. Join us each week as we discuss these changes with guests from around the industry. Welcome to the next episode of DNVGL Talks Energy podcast. Today we want to discuss the impact of climate change, the urgency of the actions needed and the opportunities ahead. My guests are Jose Maria Figueres and Cristiana Figueres. Jose Maria, former president of Costa Rica and co-chair of the Global Ocean Commission and Cristiana, former head of the UN Climate Change Convention. Good morning. Good morning, Matthias. Thank you for having us both. Very good. And I hear it's like a first time for you to come together talking about these topics here in Sioux. Well, we're both over 60 years old, so we have come together many times <laughs> over the past 60 years. But yes, it was the first time. Uh, we, we have been on stage together, sort of on panels and speaking about complementary things, but we have never done an integrated presentation, which we did yesterday for the first time as an experiment. Right, and I want to come back to that presentation yesterday because I loved a few aspects there, um, Jose Maria talking about the ocean, so I hope we, we get to this during this podcast as well. But let's jump right into our topic. We want to talk about basically COP21 and latest after COP21, the world has understood the imperative of decarbonization of the energy ecosystem to prevent climate disruptions. Are you satisfied? And protect the oceans. You have and to integrate these two okay. things. Otherwise, Sorry, Matthias, we're not going to be able to do this podcast properly, Okay, right? I see. We, just we have to integrate <laughs> the two topics. Okay, and the ocean, <laughs> and the ocean. So, are you satisfied with the level of engagement we see worldwide to hit the 2 degree or even the 1.5 degree Celsius target? Mm -hmm. So, you know, let, let me be very frank. I think uh, many governments and certainly uh, many stakeholders in the private sector and in the, inf in the investment and broadly in the finance sector are making good efforts. But the fact is that nobody's doing enough uh, because we still haven't closed the gap uh, of where we need to be. And that is why there is an urgency now for everyone to truly focus and accelerate actions over the next three years, because it is the next three years, the policies and the investment that we're going to make over the next three years that are going to largely determine whether we can get on track or not. Right. So I think we also heard a bit about carbon budget and uh, sometimes uh, when DNVGL talks about this topic, we are recommending to accelerate the actions we have to do uh, in the next couple of decades really to use as less of the carbon budget um, as we should um, right now so that we get kind of on track earlier. And Jose Maria, maybe I get over to you because I heard a lot of who is uh, conserving a lot of carbon for us and you, you explained a bit the very important role of, of the ocean in this, whole, mm -hmm. in this whole equation. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit on this. With pleasure. So in this journey of humanity to leave behind 200 years of an industrial revolution that has certainly given us a lot of good things but that as an unintended consequence has emitted the amount of carbon today we have in the atmosphere causing climate change, the one stabilizing element we have enjoyed, especially in the last decades, is of course the environmental service which the ocean provides the planet. It fixes 25 percent 
of carbon emissions. So if you have a shadow price of $20 a ton, which is way below what energy companies are using today as a shadow price for carbon, it values that environmental service at $200 billion mm. per year. And the ocean has also fixed about 90% of the increase of heat that the planet has had since 1970. So together, uh, that has bought us time in terms of being able to transition towards a low carbon economy. At a price. At a cost, of course, because uh, an unintended consequence of that is the increased process of acidification right. in the ocean, which is changing the physical and chemical characteristics of the ocean and its capacity to continue to fix the amount of carbon it does. That, in turn, has affected coral reefs, which have 30% of the biodiversity that we find in the ocean. And that, in turn, is poking big holes into our food chain uh, because without coral reefs, of which we have lost 50% since 1970, we're losing an important amount of biodiversity in the ocean. Yeah, I can relate to this because I saw the Great Barrier Reef last year and I was uh, shocked how bleached it was. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. One third gone. Yes, uh, so it's a terrible story and maybe that leads me to the urgency of the matter. I think one problem that we have when we discuss this in the society as such is still that people don't understand the consequences if we keep on talking and not closing the gap and getting there to the two degrees at least. So mm -hmm. what is your outlook um, when we would have only the 2.5 degrees, as for example DNV says in their energy transition outlook, if we would only get there, how would this world tomorrow look like? How would the world look at the end of this century? If we were to get to 2.5, yes. disaster. It's a disaster. We, we cannot go above two. Anything above two uh, has already been uh, determined by the risk gurus of this economy, who is mm -hmm. the uh, insurance industry. They told me very quick, and, and it wasn't one company. The in insurance industry determined before Paris that if we go above two degrees, the world would move into a situation that is systemically uninsurable. That means the premiums would not even have the elasticity necessary for them to continue as an insurance industry. They cannot continue and they cannot continue offering the risk management service to the global economy. So there is under no circumstance, under no circumstance, can we afford to think of a world that goes above two. And this is for our benefit. It's not for the planet, because here's the thing. The planet has existed for billions of years mm. before we ever got here. And if we cause situations that would no longer allow the humans to stay on this planet, the planet will continue in very changed form, because as you've just heard from Jose Maria, the planet is already changing. But the planet has a much greater capacity to adapt than human beings. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about the two, point, the two degrees, or in fact, well below two degrees. In fact, 1.5 is the threshold that we have to aim for in order to be able to give our children, our grandchildren, and seven generations down the line, uh, a good chance of actually being able to have dignity and, uh, and a profitable livelihood on this planet. Right. 
We have a lot of advancements in technologies, of course, coming up, and there is hope that uh, we can accelerate things. Um, would you think, is it likely that we can maybe even reverse damage we have done at some point in time? Or is it irreversible? Whatever we do up to now, what we can't get fixed, the oceans, for example, will the coral reefs come back at some point in time? Is, that, is there a hope? Look, there's a lot of things that we already know and we should be implementing all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, replanting coral reefs is something that is being done in Asia and it is being done elsewhere and that is a good promise for replenishing the biodiversity and the health of the ocean. But there are things that we still have to figure out. Uh, but the entire discussion, I think, has to be looked at uh, in a positive limelight. You know, you can choose to see the glass half empty or half full. Uh, and if we look at it half full, as I believe it is, getting carbon emissions down, reversing the trend, and restoring the health of the ocean is actually the most... And the rest of the planet. You see, we both have to get used to this integration. <laughs> and the rest <laughs> of the planet is is actually the most important economic and wealth-creating opportunity that humanity has had in a long, long time. Think of the transition to this new economy, of the jobs that are going to be created, of the new business models that are going to emerge, of the opportunities for entrepreneurs to come up with businesses that we may not have seen in the past and of all of the economic activity that that is going to create at the same time that we improve the conditions of our ecosystems on the planet. Of course there are going to be some disruptions uh, but we've always had those disruptions. That's nothing new. What is new is the tremendous opportunity for the world to move on to a much better economic situation than we've ever had before and that is much less carbon intensive than what we've had before. I would say that what is new in addition to that is the speed of change. Mm -hmm. So we have never in the history of humanity, we have never been in a situation in which the demise of the natural infrastructure, be it land or be it water, has actually uh, been in such a quick pace of, of destruction. Uh, but we've also never been in uh, a situation in which we have the capacity through finance policy and technology progress to move as quickly into the solution space as we do now. So we are irrevertibly in an age of exponentials, whether it be exponentials for good or for bad. And honestly, I think that we're in a very, very tight race between the two. And we have to make every effort to make sure that we use the age of exponentials for the good, for the construction of new opportunities and not just a safer planet, but a more just planet. Right. So recently we had a lot of these storms uh, which uh, destroyed uh, islands in, mm -hmm. in, in America, but we also had a storm, I think, coming in Japan just very recently. Um, would you see that already as a as a sign of our climate changing? You know, it is, it is not correct to say that any storm, any flood, any cyclone, any hurricane 
is caused by climate change because it is not. What is correct is to understand that what the increase in temperature and the increase in humidity in the um, in in right above us, um, not in the upper atmosphere but in the lower atmosphere, that increase in humidity and the increase in temperature maximizes the effect of floods, hurricanes, droughts. Um, so it is it, it it's important to see that climate is not the cause, but it is an accelerator uh, or a catalyst of naturally occurring events. But climate change takes these events outside of the natural boundaries of frequency and intensity. But having said that, then there is an opportunity in the reconstruction of the Caribbean, for example, to put it together in a very different way towards the future, which is not only much more resilient, but which contributes to lower carbon emissions and makes out of lowering carbon emissions a good business opportunity. I'll give you an example. In the Caribbean, energy traditionally has been produced by the import of fossil fuels. Very inefficiently, in small quantities, old generators and distribution grids which are way back in time. So energy costs in the Caribbean oscillate between 35 cents US dollar cents per kilowatt hour up to 67 cents per kilowatt hour. At those prices, any type of renewable energy is very competitive and a tremendous business opportunity. And the Caribbean has two things, wind and sun. That's already good. So changing the model on energy not only gives you a Caribbean which is much more resilient, but it also creates jobs, brings down the cost of energy, therefore creating more competitive islands, a win-win for all. And those are the types of opportunities we need to identify and move fast on, as Christiana has mentioned. And two additional advantages of that is there are many islands that are using up to a third or maybe even 50% of their national budget to import fossil fuels in order to have energy. So by the time you have uh, renewable energy, that definitely needs the investment up front. But later on, the cost of fuel is zero. <coughs> then you are saving the country those very expensive costs and you make that country politically less dependent on those other countries from which they would buy fuels. So, um, so the geopolitics uh, really switches for them, um, as well as their, uh, the, the balance in their uh, national budgets. I think uh, there was two very interesting points you just mentioned where I would like to go a bit more into detail. So the shift of geopolitics uh, due to new fuels, mm -hmm. definitely, but also the, the moral discussion uh, about um, the energy exporters do have. So we were just in Australia where there seems to be a discussion now, what is our uh, moral responsibility to be a large coal exporter? It's not mm -hmm. only about them using coal in their own country, but they're also shipping it out of country. So mm -hmm. what about uh, responsibilities of countries who are rich in fossils to, to kind of don't make them available anymore to the rest of the world? Is that mm -hmm. something we, we could uh, ask these countries um, to do? Look, there's, there's no doubt that there's a moral imperative, uh, whether it's about 
exporting uh, coal in particular uh, or, or burning coal. So there's definitely a moral imperative. But the moral imperative works uh, and is listened to or is reacted to by a very small subset of stakeholders. The important thing about coal is that in addition to the moral imperative, it is simply a sunset industry because it has lost both the social license to operate, there is more public uh, complaints about the burning of coal because of the impacts of health, because of the need of fresh water to, uh, to clean the coal. Um, it it is, is simply not uh, an industry that will continue to enjoy public tolerance. And secondly, it has lost its economic competitiveness because we know that coal is actually now uh, become more expensive in many jurisdictions than gas and then renewable energy. So coal is, is an industry that will not continue into this 21st century. We're actually foreseeing, and I think that DMV also, that we will see a peaking of coal in all countries globally uh, by 2020. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are coming slightly to the end of the time of this episode now already. Uh, maybe very briefly on, on uh, geopolitics. Mm -hmm. uh, renewable rich countries could suddenly be the very important countries in the world. So, I mean, Middle East probably is still lucky because they have still a lot of sun and here and there wind. Uh, but suddenly also regions like Africa uh, maybe have a better chance. You foresee long-term change of uh, geo geopolitical gravity centers? Mm -hmm. Definitely, because you know this this dependence. We we when we grew up, we were always um, taught that geopolitics is largely influenced by fossil fuels, by the concentration of fossil fuels in a few countries, and by the need of the world to protect the transportation routes of those fossil fuels. Now, as we move to a world in which we are democratizing energy, as I call it, in which everybody will use their endogenous, their nationally occurring, uh, and nationally and naturally occurring energy sources, now you have a complete switch in that geopolitics. So those countries that do have fossil fuels will lose their edge on geopolitics. Those countries that have the mines for the metals and the rare elements uh, and minerals that are necessary for the new technologies, such as China, Chile, Australia, will actually uh, be the new geopolitical energy giants. But geopolitics in the way that you are looking at it also implies good governance, good global governance. Mm. And that chapter of governance is specifically important when it comes to the high seas, that part of the ocean which covers about 50% of the planet's surface, and where, because it belongs to all of us, none take responsibility. So the detriment that we're, the damage that we're causing to the ocean in the high seas is tremendous, and it requires countries coming together to work out a governance structure for the high seas that looks at the high seas as areas of replenishment for fisheries and that sets international standards with respect to how we treat that part of the ocean, which is very important in terms of putting the entire ocean back on a path of recovery. At the end of the day here, our livelihoods outside of the ocean depend on the good health 
of what's in the ocean. And that's a new component that we still haven't come to grapple with in our thought processes about development that we have to add. Right, thank you. So unfortunately we are very pressed on time and I know you both are on very tight schedules here in Singapore. Last question, what are your main takeaways from SU 2017? You know, I was quite pleasantly surprised that the bulk of the conversation was about renewables, not just about <clears throat> the incredible penetration and growth of renewables, but how do we integrate them uh, more harmoniously into the grids? Because we all know that there is this, you know, mythical um, barrier of about 30 to 40 percent uh, of renewables that can go into an electric grid before you begin to destabilize the grid. So what I thought was a very interesting conversation is how there were already uh, there was already thinking about how do you extend that barrier? How do you go beyond the 30 to 40, which has to do with digitalization, it has to do with artificial intelligence, certainly has to do with, uh, with changing the market structures, um, but we're no longer accepting that barrier and uh, pushing beyond, which is exactly what we have to do to be at a decarbonized economy by 2050. Right, thank you. And Jose Maria, your takeaway? So I was very pleasantly surprised with uh, Sue in that for the first time ever, they incorporated a conversation on the ocean. I see climate change and ocean as two sides of the same coin. The same way that the world has come to understand the necessities of mitigating climate change, lowering carbon emissions, uh, is still the route that we need to take with respect to the ocean. And the fact that we could begin that conversation here at the Singapore International Energy Week, SIU, is already a very good starting point. Thank you very much, Christiana. Thank you, Matthias. Thank you very much, Jose Maria. Matthias, muchas gracias. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank you very much also to the, listener, the listeners. That was Christiana Figueres, former head of the UN Climate Change Convention, and Jose Maria Figueres, former president Costa Rica and co-chair of the Global Ocean Commission about climate change, the urgency of that matter, and what opportunities we have to change. Thank you very much, both of you, to have you here. And uh, I hope you listen in for the next episode. Thank you for listening to this DNVGL Talks Energy podcast. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com slash talksenergy.